Welcome to the Greater Southern Church Podcast, where you'll learn to connect to Jesus and others through great teaching, inspirational stories, and relevant content. I'm Matt Manning, the pastor of Greater Philly Church, and it's my goal to help you understand yourself, your relationships, and life in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Thanks so much for listening. Let me take your notes this morning. As we continue through our series, I Am Why. Today we're going to look specifically at Because I'm Guilty. Guilt is not something we like to talk about. It's a very can be a very sticky kind of uh, uh, issue as we talk through this morning. We're going to look at this question, answering this question, how can you overcome overwhelming guilt? As you're getting settled in there, I want to uh, make a few comments. For those of you watching on Facebook Live, I want to thank you so much for tuning in. We've had uh, a lot of response. If you're interested in donating to Greater Philly Church, you can go to Greater Philly uh, dot church, and in the upper left-hand corner, you can click on there, and you can give to us online as well. I want to thank you so much for those of you who have uh, liked and shared the videos and posts, and I'd encourage you to share them with your friends and share them with people as we get the word about, out about our church, especially as we go through this series talking about salvation. As you look in your notes there, we're going to answer this question looking here this morning, the issue of guilt. As I was doing research and study for this, I looked online, and it's interesting. You can go, there's Wikipedia, and you can find out all kinds of semi-truth, semi-information there, because people can kind of create their own truth. But then there's also a website called WikiHow. How many of you have ever gone to WikiHow? Anybody? Okay. So I typed in how to deal with guilt, and here are some of the questions that people ask. Here are some real-life scenarios talking about dealing with guilt. What's interesting is we're going to look at the connection between biblical guilt and some of these comments that we're going to hear this morning. Some of these questions range uh, from the following. This person writes, Why is it that since my wife died, I can only remember the things I said that hurt her and have difficulty remembering the things I did that made her happy? Another person wrote, a, a school-age individual, I broke every school bag I've had this year. My mom's okay with it, but I feel so bad. Is there anything that I can do to take the edge off the guilt? Another person wrote this question, I said something hurtful to my girlfriend, how do I get over my guilt? Another person wrote and said this, I swore in front of my friend on speakerphone and his family heard me. Now I feel so much guilt, what can I do? Again, somebody said something I feel bad about. Another one wrote this, I broke the hinge of my mom's laptop. I'm really sad that she's sad and I can't breathe properly. What do I do? We have multiple, multiple issues. Hide the laptop, go get a breathing apparatus, you'll be good to go. We find another one that says, here's a, a really tough one. What if I told my dying friend that I would take care of her dogs, but I really don't like dogs? That's a tough predicament. My boyfriend was injured last week in a soccer game. He's all right now, but I feel guilty for not being with him when he was hurt. What can I do to forgive myself? Another one wrote this. Uh, I feel guilty for smoking marijuana. How can I quit doing it? And we go through all these different, different scenarios, all these different questions, and the uh, people that wrote these questions, people could go on and give answers to them. But have you ever been in a situation where you said or did something that you feel so horrible, horrible about? Maybe there was something you'd said, I would never, ever do this. And maybe you can empathize with what these people have written. But think about a situation when you, when you say, I would never, ever do this, but then you turn around and you do it anyway. And dealing with that uneasiness... One of the most incredible stories that I, uh, talking about dealing with guilt, uh, this past week I read uh, a story about Adolf Hitler and his platform that he uh, developed and built back in the mid-1930s when he came to his power and rule in Germany. Part of his platform was an anti-drug, uh, anti-substance uh, abuse platform, and he said, no, no drugs, no drugs at all. And so as they got into the war, World War II, uh, he was known for not drinking coffee because of fear of caffeine and being addicted to the caffeine. Another point, when they were taking a, a, a ride on a boat, uh, he had a fellow soldier who was standing there smoking, and he told the guy, give me your pack of cigarettes, and he threw them out and threw them off the side of the boat because he didn't want to have anybody around him who was addicted to anything. But he's supposed to have a meeting with Mussolini, and he told his personal doctor, his personal physician, I, I feel so sick. Hitler had a lot of stomach problems. He had a lot of stomach ailments. Not sure if it was Crohn's or some kind of uh, celiac or whatever it might be, but he had a lot of stomach issues. And so he was doubled over in pain, and his physician said, listen, I'll give you a vitamin shot that hopefully will help you. And so the physician gave him this mixture of vitamins and some other things and, and put it in Hitler, and Hitler right away felt this incredible surge of energy, and he sat up, and he had this brightness in his eyes, and he said, I feel great. Give me another shot. And so the doctor said, 
well, I don't, I don't think you'll be able to handle it. He said, give me another shot. So he gave him another shot of this vitamin mix. He went off to his meeting with Mussolini. Mussolini wanted to pull out. He did not want to get involved in the war at the time. But Hitler was so energized and so excited, he talked for two hours straight and talked Mussolini into being into the war. What's interesting is Hitler felt so good, he said, whatever this stuff is, we need to start packaging it and give it, give it to our, our soldiers, to our military. So they created a small pill called Prevotin. And they would give it to their soldiers, and they found that the soldiers right away had this incredible energy, and they had the ability to go through some very difficult times and be able to soldier on and move forward. The problem was they started hallucinating. They started having heart problems. They started having double vision and started seeing uh, hallucinogenic kind of colors. And so you can get an idea of where this is going. The platform that Hitler had built of anti-drugs, what he was giving to his military one of the German doctors was very concerned about what was happening, so he tested the substance in this Prevotin and found out it was a mixture of cocaine and meth. And so the military was moving forward, and eventually they, they called it anti-drugs again. They said, stop with the Prevotin. But the soldiers liked it so much, they called it tank chocolate. They loved this stuff. For all intents and purposes, Hitler was a drug addict, and he would take these drugs every single day of his life until the day he committed suicide. But for him, going from a position of saying no drugs at all to then finding himself saying, I need this stuff, give it to me, there's really no, no sense of guilt whatsoever. As I looked and typed in finding questions about how to deal with guilt, there were responses that came up on Google like this. There's two types of guilt. There's four types of guilt. There's five types of guilt. There's 20 types of mom guilt that have been described. Nine ways to talk yourself out of guilt. Then there's an, a, a, a clinical... Um, disease called excessive guilt disorder. Well, then I typed in, what's the opposite of that? And the opposite of that would be to be a sociopath. So it's difficult going through this whole thing of understanding what is guilt. As you look there in your notes this morning, we want to understand that there is what I could find from my study, and then looking at Scripture, there's five different causes, five different types of guilt, and some of them, Scripture directly talks about dealing with the guilt. Others of them are things that the Bible doesn't even describe as an issue, really, of guilt. We just kind of feel this way. We feel uneasy. So as you look at your notes, we'll put it up on the screen. What are the five causes of guilt, and why does it make us feel bad? The first one is this. Guilt cause number one is guilt for something you did, which would be considered sin. We just call it that. You feel bad for something that you did or maybe something that you didn't do, but it's basically, it's sin. We have sins of omission, things that we should do that we don't, and sins of commission, sins that we do that we shouldn't be doing. So the first type of guilt is the guilt we feel for sin. The second type of guilt is guilt for something you didn't do, but you wanted to do. That would what we would call or categorize as temptation. So we haven't done anything wrong yet, it's just that we want to do something, and so that, that sense of guilt or that sense of unease would what we would call temptation. The third cause is this, guilt for something you think you did. Maybe you come from a situation, and we would call that false guilt, a situation where somebody accuses you of doing something and you didn't do it, but you feel bad and you think, why do I feel bad about this? Well, it's, a, it's a false type of guilt. The fourth cause is this, guilt that you didn't do enough. Maybe you didn't do enough to help somebody. Maybe you're not doing enough at your workplace and you feel this pressure that you just cannot do enough. That's what we would call shame, as you see there on the screen. The fifth cause of guilt, would be, and this is a tough one, the last one we'll look at, is guilt that, you, uh, that you're doing better than someone else or that you survived something that someone else didn't survive. What we call that survivor's guilt. Maybe you're in a car accident or something bad happened or maybe you had a child pass away and it's very difficult because you feel like, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be the one to pass away before my kid or grandkid does. And so there's this sense of, God, why did you allow them to go before me? But to be able to understand this issue of guilt, we have to look at some definitions and some words that we're going to look at through the Scriptures this morning. And we'll look at and define these four different terms here in just a moment. But the first term we want to look at is this, is conscience. The word conscience. We'll see there, conscience, if we can put up on the screen, great is an internal moral sense of right and wrong, our conscience. And in our society today, this is becoming more and more of an uh, amoebic kind of thing that's kind of real shifty. Whatever you want to be right or wrong is kind of, there's really no standard. The only standard is ourselves. And if anything, today, as, as doing the research, I found this over and over again, the constant encouragement was be true to yourself. Be true to yourself, be true to yourself. 
But the problem is, what if being true to yourself doesn't make you feel any better? What if it doesn't relieve anything? So we're going to talk about what is conscience and how does that impact our sense of guilt. We'll look at the next one is this, justification. Justification, to make morally right, to justify. Uh, You hear this in legal terms in our court systems. You also see this in, maybe if you're in a Word document, left justify, right justify, center justification. We find it's to make morally right, though. Justify is to make something that was wrong and to make it right. The third definition we're going to look at is this, is faith. To understand how this all works together in our connection with God, that faith is belief in God. It's acknowledging God in my thinking, my feelings, and my decisions. Now we'll find there, you can see there in your notes, and then we'll put up on the screen, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, directly talks about these three terminologies. We'll look at it, we'll put up on the screen. We see in verse 14 it says, and Paul is writing to the Jews, or to some people in Rome, and he says, speaking of the Gentiles, individuals who are not Jewish, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves. And so what he says there is these people that are not Jewish, they don't have the Ten Commandments, they don't have the Jewish law, but they have these rules in and of themselves of right and wrong. He says there that they have the sense of the same things that are contained in the Jewish law. These people who don't have the Jewish law have similar kind of rules and regulations and stipulations. He goes on then to verse 15 and he says this. He says, "...which show the work of the law written in their hearts." Their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. And so he says there that they have this sense of right and wrong. You could go to third world countries or go down to the jungles of South Africa uh, uh, or South America or Africa, and you can find that even in these places where people are not maybe educated or maybe not civilized, that they have their own sense of conscience of right and wrong, of what is good and what is bad. You can go to most places and talk to most anybody in the world and there is a sense that for me to take somebody else's life is morally, is universally, is wrong. It's not right to do that. And we have other rules and regulations and other things, but talking about their conscience, even without the law, without knowing the instruction from the Old Testament, he's saying these people who don't have the Jewish law, they have a sense of right and wrong in themselves. We go on then and give this fourth definition then of what we're talking about this morning, this sense of guilt. What is guilt? Guilt is that feeling bad, that uneasiness that we have. As you look in your notes, it goes on then to say, it's the desire to hide or blush with shame and embarrassment. It's a fear of rejection or disconnection. If you think about those words, you say, that sounds kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden. You're right. And Adam and Eve, as we talked about two weeks ago when they were in the garden of Eden, and they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right away what came upon them was a sense of shame and was a sense of guilt that they had done wrong. And that uneasy feeling, which we don't like, we want to get rid of. I feel bad. I don't like feeling bad, so what do I do? The problem is, we find in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, you can look there on the screen. It says there, Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. What's interesting is this. We sometimes say, well, you can't hold somebody guilty for something they didn't know. It's called the idea of innocence before proven guilty. It's the idea of, well, they didn't know the rules and they didn't know the laws. And one of the the discussions that I've had with people as I've shared the gospel with them is this. Would a good God hold people who are in a third world country or people who don't know about Jesus Christ, would he hold them to putting their faith and trust in God? Would he hold them to, would he send those people to hell who never heard about God? And what we find, what's amazing is this, that God holds people accountable according to what they understand and know. And everyone, what we understand from Romans chapter 2 is every under, everyone understands a sense of right and a sense of wrong. What we find here that everyone before God is what? Is guilty. Now what's difficult is this. We are guilty of all the five causes of guilt. We're only guilty of one of those causes, and that is the guilt of sin. False guilt, God's not going to hold us accountable for. God's not going to condemn you or judge you for temptation because you haven't done anything wrong. God's not going to condemn you for survivor's guilt. He's not going to condemn you for false guilt or even shame. But what God does hold us to is our sin. What we find is this. There's this confusion. And what happens is this. As you see here in your notes, as we look on, 
Guilt is a weight that indicates something is wrong in our capacity to connect to God. It's something is, 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 is uh, misaligned, something is wrong. And so what we find is this, and the problem is in our society today, a lot of people say, well, I feel disconnected from myself. I don't know myself. And so the bottom line, we always hear these words, well, be true to yourself. Get connected with yourself. And the problem is, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and, and it's desperately sinful. Who can know it? The idea is a rhetorical question. Only God can know our hearts. And so for each one of us, we can find maybe at times where we found ourselves disillusioned or confused and saying, I can't understand uh, up from down. And so we've got to come back to, there's got to be a moral standard outside of ourselves that can apply not just to me, but to everybody. And so we find this, that guilt, it's not a bad thing. That it's simply an indicator. It's kind of like as you're driving along, you see on your dashboard, those little lights that come up that say like low, low oil, or maybe your engine's overheating. So what do you do? You find black electrical tape and you put it over those little indicators, right? That's what you're supposed to do. No, you're supposed to, okay, I I gotta call a mechanic, I gotta get my car fixed, something's wrong. It's an indicator light. That's exactly what guilt is. The difficulty is this for many of us, when it comes to our guilt, we try to deal with guilt in numerous different kind of ways. Instead of reconnecting with God, we try to handle it various other ways. As you look there in your notes, but what if guilt is just a social construct to control the masses? What if guilt really isn't, is just a, like a, it's like a, a, just a Bible thought that's kind of archaic and old? What if it's just something that's used by religious people to make people feel bad, to control people? Let's look at some possibilities. What are three ways that we try outside of God, we try to deal with guilt? How do we try to overcome guilt? Number one, the first way is this. We try to rewrite the rules or the laws. We try to rewrite the rules, the laws, or we deny the laws altogether. And simply, if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about trying to connect with God or trying to connect and and get right in our lives. It's either information, representation, or tradition. And what we find is this. We're trying to rewrite the laws and rewrite the rules to deny the laws altogether possibly by, well, what if we know new things? And it's difficult because in science... Science is constantly, we're discovering new things and new things about our minds, about our bodies, and about nature, and about creation all around us. And those science laws that are self-evident to a degree are beginning to impact our moral laws. And when somebody says, well, I feel a certain way or I think a certain way, we begin to rewrite those rules and rewrite those laws. What we find is it's simply an issue of, well, if we change the information then we can thereby connect with the guilt and say, well, we don't feel guilty anymore because it's just an issue of information. The second way is role reversal. Role reversal by representation. As you see there in your notes, the quote would be this, is that who made God the judge anyway? You can't judge me or anyone else. If you've ever heard people, any uh, relationships with people, and this comment, the idea is, well, you can't, who are you to judge me? You can't judge me. You're not in my shoes. You don't know me. And yet we find ourselves, God is being the judge, and what we end up doing is we say, God, you can't be the judge anymore. I am now the judge because humanity and human opinion takes rule over God and over anybody else. And so we take ourselves out of the defendant box or out of the jury, and we put ourselves as judge. And all of a sudden we find ourselves now in our society, and even to some degree in our homes, in our schools, in our churches, when we have a role reversal and we say, Whoever wants to be the judge can be the judge. All of a sudden, things begin to fall apart. And that's what we talked about before, representation. You can make God whoever you want it to be. So I can be God if I want to. There's a guy, I remember, he changed his name to God Sham God because that was just kind of his thing. He was kind of a guy that was interesting. He wanted attention, and so he changed his name to be God. We had a guy walk in here one time uh, on a Saturday. I think we were working on some stuff. He came in, and I said, hey, how you doing? What's your name? And he said, my name is God. But... My given name is Stephen. I said, well, I'll call you Stephen if that's okay. People try to change things, and whoever's in control and whoever's in charge and whoever's the authority then makes the rules. Number three then, when it comes to religion and when it comes to church and tradition, we have this try harder. It's the self-condemnation. As you see there in your notes, it's wearing a hair shirt. Penitence. It's I must atone for my sin by self-inflicted punishment. 
If you've come out of a background, possibly of a, or, or have friends that come out of a background of a Catholic church, this is very predominant in that. If you've ever seen Dan Brown, his movies, uh, The Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons or any of those, he has one of his movies, I think it's uh, uh, The Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons, one of those where there's a monk that is kind of a, a self-appointed, he's like an assassin of sorts. But at one point in the movie, or in the storyline, it shows this monk, his name's, I think it's Silas, he uh, has his robe on, and he shows that he has this thing uh, wrapped around his legs, like a leather uh, piece, like a, like a belt, but it's got these uh, uh, barbs and nails and things, and he wraps it around his leg to inflict pain. And it shows him later on, he's flogging himself, he's whipping himself, because he wants to find penance for what he did. The refor- reformer Martin Luther has been told, the guy who started the Lutheran church, he wrote that one time he had a bad thought, and he felt so bad about it, he dove into a thistle bush to try to, to punish himself. The problem is, no matter how much we inflict pain upon ourselves, it cannot take away the guilt. For some people, if you have friends or know of somebody, maybe you struggle with this yourself, the whole concept of cutting, somebody who cuts themselves to release the pain or to release the hurt or the heartache, it can be so difficult because there's a sense of, I'm wrong, there's a sense of guilt. And without dealing with that guilt, there can be no release or no freedom. We found this with our kids, especially if you've got small kids. One of the issues you can find is as they're growing up, they struggle with these issues because they understand right and wrong. And I can remember with each one of my kids, and and the younger ones too, they're going through this process. They want to know, are there boundaries and are there consequences? Because they carry this burden of guilt on them. And when we try to say to, to our kids, well, you just need to try harder. Well, that doesn't take care of the guilt. Or you know what? You're going to be the parent. And I'll listen to you, and we'll do whatever you want to do, and that'll be fine. You know how that doesn't go well. Or we say, the other one is this, is, well, let's just, let's just try another, another set of boundaries for you. Maybe we just need to extend your boundaries. For a child, it doesn't deal with their guilt. Guilt is like looking at a set of scales or balances and trying to even out the weight on either side. When one side gets too heavy, we have to add weight to the other side and try to figure out what is it that evens out and, and releases the pressure. Romans chapter 11, verse 32 Look there, I believe we put it on the screen. It says, For God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Without all people, without God looking at humanity and saying, We are all guilty, there is no opportunity for mercy. And everybody wants mercy. Every one of us wants to be loved by God, and we want to give mercy to people, and we want people to know that they're loved by God. And there are people that preach a gospel called universalism. That is that God loves everybody and that everybody gets to go to heaven. The problem is it doesn't deal with the issue of guilt. And no matter how much God loves us, if we don't address the issue of guilt, we will never know the full love of God. And so we find here we have to, be, we have to come to this conclusion. God, as the judge, he's concluded that all people are guilty so that he can offer all people his mercy and his grace and forgiveness. As you look there in your notes, we find this, that the facts are we're guilty before God. God is the judge, and the only way to deal with guilt is by the following. As we look here in your notes, that we are guilty by, and here's the truth of the Scripture, by association. We are guilty by association. How is that? Because we are human beings. Adam and Eve, they had kids, and their kids had kids, and their kids had kids, and their kids had kids, over and over and over again, which brings us to today. And the Bible says that the sin of Adam and Eve, it's been passed down to us. I don't have to teach my kids how to, how to, to lie. I don't have to teach my kids how to sin. And there's no, like, sin 101 for our children. There's a lot of uh, obedience 101 for our kids. But what we find is this. We'll pull up these scriptures, and you can look there in your notes, that Romans 5.12 says this, Whereas by one man, speaking of Adam, because of his sin, it entered into the world. And the consequence for sin is death. It's separation from God forever in a place called hell. So death has passed upon all of us. Why? Because all have sinned. And the problem is this, no matter how we try to justify ourselves and say, but I, I'm, not, I'm not sinful, I'm not guilty, we're, we're cutting off from, from ourselves the capacity to be forgiven. It's like being found guilty and the judge saying, here's your court date, and you say, well, I'm just not going to show up to the court date. Well, it doesn't matter if you don't show up to the court date or not. You're still guilty, and we still have to pass judgment on you. Well, I'm just not going to show up. Well, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to send out the sheriff's deputies, and they're going to go arrest you and just put you in jail, right? The problem is, God says, I want you to have your day in court because there's more to the story. 
I want to be able to offer to you the following. Here's the next step of dealing with guilt. We are, first of all, guilty by association, but we can be made innocent by justification. This is why Jesus came to die for us. If you say, but, but I have this guilty sense, well, two, two thoughts. One is maybe you're not saved. Or number two, there maybe has to be an understanding of, well, what truly is God holding you guilty for? And we'll talk about this as we go along. But we find in Scripture, how are we justified? How does this justification work? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it says, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, it's our teacher, to do what? To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Faith is what? It's a belief in God. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If I had up here, and we don't, uh, if you can imagine in your mind's eye, a door with ten locks on it, and each one of those locks represents one of the Ten Commandments. And you say, well, I'm a really good person. Okay, did you honor your mom and dad? Yes. Well, then I'll give you the key to unlock that lock. So you unlock that lock. And we go all the way through. Have you honored God? Yes. Have you ever cursed God? No. Uh, do you, do you uh, o- obey the Sabbath? Yes, I do. I go to church. Do you, uh, have you ever stolen from anybody? No. Have you ever uh, uh, murdered anybody? No. So you get all those keys. Okay, the last one, the last lock. Have you ever wanted something that wasn't yours that somebody else had? Well, maybe. My neighbor got a brand new lawnmower, and it's pretty slick, and I kind of wanted it. Okay, I can't give you that key. So if you can lock all nine locks on that door, but there's one lock you can't unlock, can you open the door? No, because you have to be able to unlock all those locks. What is the point of the Ten Commandments? What is the point of laws and rules? It's to show us we cannot live up to those expectations. And so, it points us to Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith. With my kids having rules and having to ask them, you need to obey me, it's a point not of just discipline and obedience, but it's a point of connection. Because here's the deal. If my kids continue to do whatever they want to do, and I don't step in as dad, you know what begins to happen in their hearts? They begin to think, well, dad doesn't care. Well, dad doesn't really know. And if my dad doesn't care about me, so you know what happens with my kids? If they want my attention, they'll go, Dad, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing and just ignore them. Dad, and I'll keep doing. You know what they'll do? They'll start yelling louder. And then they'll get in front of me. And then they'll like, light themselves on fire. No, they have never done that. But they'll try to light the house on fire. They'll do all kinds of crazy things. Why? Because they want attention. If you see people, your friends or people in society doing just crazy wild things, why? Because they want attention. Attention, even if it's bad attention, is still good for many people. And for us, with our relationship with God, God says, I'm going to put rules in place so that you know you need me because you're sinful and you have to have a relationship with me. And so we find then, as you look there in your notes, so what does this mean for me and you? What does this mean? So what? We can only be free of guilt and be made right in a relationship with God by faith. Guilt, it's not about being true to ourselves. Guilt, it's not about about trying to understand things better. Guilt is not about a role reversal. You don't tell me what to do, I tell you what to do. Guilt is not about inflicting pain upon ourselves. Guilt is this, connect to God. Guilt is this, is we need to get back in a relationship with God. We find this, some of the, the strongest words in Scripture to help us understand this a part of, as I mentioned before, the Romans road. These are the first verses to try to explain to somebody what it means to begin to, to understand what salvation is. Romans 3.23. We find those words that says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As I've shared the gospel with people and witnessed them, especially in this, in this area, I'll say to them things like this. I'll explain to them and I'll say, this is what the, the Bible says. And they'll say, well, I, I don't know if I agree with that. And I'll say, well, if I have a baseball and I take it and I toss it to you, can you catch it? And they'll say, well, yeah, of course I can catch it. Like, you're right. Like, what do you think, I'm crazy? And so I'll say, okay, I toss it to you. Great. Now I've got a baseball. I'm going to throw it across the street into the neighbor's yard. Do you think I can do that? Yeah, sure. Now here's the deal. I really, really love baseball. I don't, but like anyway, just for illustration's sake. But I really, really, really like baseball. And so if I take a baseball and try to throw it down to uh, Citizens Bank Park all the way down, uh, down in the city, do you think I can make it? And they'll go, no, it's crazy. The same thing for us is this. No matter how much we try to relieve the guilt, 
no matter how good we try to be, no matter how much self-inflicted pain we try, no matter the role reversal, no matter the information, it's never going to be enough to connect us to God except for Jesus Christ. So how do we deal with the guilt biblically? As you look here in your notes, we find this. There's four ways of dealing with guilt. Hopefully you understand that guilt, it's a very powerful, uneasy thing, but it's not a bad thing. Guilt is a good thing because it drives us to God. Number one, first of all is this. The four steps to dealing with guilt maybe that you struggle with. Number one is this. Acknowledge the guilt. Many times simply this is there's a denial that I don't, I don't feel bad, or we try to numb it by being like a Hitler, and we just try to substance abuse the thing to death. We try to numb ourselves because we don't want to feel. But if we could acknowledge the fact that we are wrong. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. I don't like to be told I'm wrong. None of us likes to be told we're wrong. But when we take that step and say, you know what? There is guilt. Now you say, but... But Pastor Matt, what if my guilt isn't sin? What if I didn't do anything wrong? What if it's one of the other categories? Well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But acknowledge that there is guilt, first of all. Getting past denial is huge. Acknowledge that there is guilt. Number two is this. If we have sinned, accept responsibility for the sin. If this is not sin, we'll talk about again in just a minute what it is. But if we've sinned against God or we've sinned against somebody else, we have to accept the responsibility. I have done wrong. I've said wrong. I've thought wrong. I didn't do what I should have, so we accept responsibility for it. Number three is this. Agree with God about your sin. This is what we call confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says this, that if we confess, the word to confess is to agree about something with God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word forgiveness, and we'll talk next week specifically about forgiveness, how to receive God's forgiveness, What about the idea of how do we forgive ourselves? How do we forgive somebody else? We'll talk about that next week in more detail. But the step number three is this, to agree with God about our sin. If we confess to God, God, I'm wrong, I didn't do something, or I should have done something, then God can go ahead and release us from that guilt. That guilt can be released, and we can have that freedom and that sense of peace once again. And here's number four, and this is where we'll get into a lot of the practicality of how all this stuff works out. Number four is write down what you feel guilty about. If you want to, you can, in your notes today, as you're looking through, if any of these things ring true, just put a check mark by it so you can come back later, maybe this week, and address some of these issues. But we'll go back through and look. Those five causes of guilt we talked about in the beginning, we'll address those here as we go on through. If the guilt is legitimate, and it's according to the Bible, if it's legitimate, it's according to the Bible, that's what we would call sin. So is what you're feeling, the guilt you're feeling, is it because of sin, yes or no? You can mark that off if that applies to you. The next one is this. Is the guilt self-inflicted? Maybe, the, and this is where we talk about the temptation. That is, we have secret rules, and we've said, I'll never, ever miss a day of work. And you miss a day of work because you got sick. And everybody gets sick at some point, but you, you, you did something, and you said, man, I feel horrible about it. And you find yourself, you have secret rules. You say, I've got these rules that nobody else abides by, and I just apply them to myself. We'll have to find... Is it something that, that is not morally or biblically wrong, but you find yourself, you feel guilty because you, maybe you ate a piece of chocolate? Maybe you said something you shouldn't have said. We'll talk about how to handle that in just a minute. What about if the, the guilt is imposed by shame? Maybe from a family member, maybe from socially, from society, you feel this guilt. You say, how do I handle that? If it's imposed from somebody else, you can check that off, it applies to you. Maybe it's survivor's guilt, that you made it through a tra- tragedy, but somebody else did it. Maybe you feel bad about that. If it applies to you, check that off. Number five, then, if the guilt is false guilt, as we talked about before, you did something, or someone did something to you, and you think it's your fault, and you've been carrying that with you all your life. Now, we look down, and here's this next section, how to deal with them, specifically those ones. So whatever one you checked off of, then just correlate it with these answers. First of all, if it's legitimate, if it's sin, ask God for forgiveness. And we go back to the, the steps we just talked about to acknowledge the sin, to uh, agree with it, to accept it, if it's legitimate. The next one is, if it's self-inflicted, change your thinking, renew your mind with God's Word. 95% of the thoughts we think today will think tomorrow. So you've got about a 5% window of changing in your thinking to go ahead and, and redirect your thoughts about these things. What's interesting is this, a lot of people talk about ADHD being such a bad thing, but you know, I don't think it is to some degree. 
we find ourselves, we think the same things over and over and over again. Well, lean into and hang on to a little bit of ADHD and try to, to get distracted from those thoughts for just a minute. You say, oh, how do I do that? Your mind is kind of like a desktop computer, kind of like a, like a phone, uh, phone screen. Whatever you bring up, whatever app you bring up on your phone is what occupies the, 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 the space on the front of the phone. And so whatever you have open there is what you're going to engage, what you're going to interact with. And so the thoughts that you want to bring up to your mind, if you read Scripture and you memorize Scripture and you think on Scripture, you can go ahead and begin to change your thinking by putting things into your mind that are honoring to God. Philippians chapter 4 talks about this. Philippians 4, 8 says, Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, whatsoever things have a good uh, report, a good testimony, are good to talk about, think about, those will thing, be things that will help change our mind. The next one is this. If it's self-imposed, or if it's, if it's imposed, if it's maybe a family member says that we should have done this or should have done that, or it's a society thing, we need to identify the source and ask a friend for objectivity. You say to your friend, hey, my family kind of has this thing, this kind of rule, that whenever we make meatloaf or whenever we make pot roast, we have to cut off the end of it. Do you do that? No, I don't do that. If you've ever heard the story before, I talk about how that young mom, she cuts off the end of the pot roast. She calls her mom and says, mom, why do we cut off the end of the pot roast? She says, I don't know. Your grandma always did it. So she calls her mom and says, mom, why do we cut off the end of the pot roast? And her mom says, well, because the pot roast pan didn't have enough room for the size of pot roast we usually get. I just cut off the end. There's really no reason for them to go ahead and cut the end of the pot roast off. But you find yourself, if you have guilt, get some objectivity from other people. Sometimes we feel guilty about stuff, and you say to a friend, hey, do you feel guilty about this? And they say, yeah, I do, but I just need a piece of chocolate to get over it, you know? When you talk to other people, you'll be amazed that a lot of feelings we feel and a lot of things we think, other people feel those things and they think those things. We're just too afraid to share them with each other. We're too fearful to say, hey, I feel this way. Do you feel this way? I do. Do you? Mm-hmm. A lot of the time. Every Monday morning I feel that way. And that's why I have to stop at Starbucks and get a, you know, or, or Wawa or whatever. And we begin to empathize. And when we begin to share with people, we'll find that the guilt, it's really this false sense of guilt. It's just really shame from a relationship from somebody. As you look there, survivor's guilt. You say, I survived and this other person didn't. How do I deal with this bad feeling? Honor the person and then seek to create new memories. It's very difficult because we hold them in our heart, and the guilt we feel can be so strong and so great. And maybe there's a relationship. Maybe it's even something that happened when you had a relationship with a friend, and they're not dead, but that relationship is severed. It'd be better probably, and this sounds horrible, it'd be probably better if they were dead because then you could just just reconcile that whole thought in your mind. But what if you had a bad relationship that didn't work out? You say, I feel bad about it. To honor the person, respect them, but then begin to create new memories and create new friendships and new relationships. What if it's false guilt? What if somebody did something to you and they said, well, it's just your fault? And you say, but I didn't do anything wrong. And they say, no, it's your fault. You did wrong. As you look in your notes there, first of all is to forgive them. We'll talk more, as I said, we'll talk more next week about this forgiveness process, but to forgive them is to give them the benefit of the doubt, forgive them. And you say, but am I saying that what they did was was it wrong? No, it's wrong. But in order to be free of your guilt, you have to start with this step of forgiveness to say, I will not hold you anymore. I will not hold you because when we have unforgiveness in our heart, we have bitterness toward people, all it does is it holds us and it has power over us. And the problem with this issue of guilt is this. If I let go, I lose and I, I don't retain power anymore. And if I, if I forgive people, and if I let go of the guilt that I can lay on them, that guilt that's so heavy I can manipulate them and control them with, I lose power. Guilt is a very powerful thing. And I'll just say this as a side note. It's very difficult, but in many of our churches today, guilt is a motivator. Guilt motivates people, moves people very quickly. You can say things to people like, you didn't show up on time, or you didn't do this, or you didn't pay this, or you didn't uh, come through on this. And we can say all these different things. And especially we can find ourselves as a pastor, I have to be very careful what I say because guilt can be a motivator, but it's a manipulator. And if somebody is guilting you in a relationship and telling you, you need to do this or you should do this, and it doesn't line up biblically with the scriptures, they are trying to manipulate you and I would get out of that friendship, get out of that relationship or whatever it might be if people are using guilt as a manipulator. But when it comes to false guilt, thank God for your safety. Thank God that you're here today. Thank God that you're alive today, that you've gotten to this point. 
And then as you see there, seek to cultivate new healthy connections with people. Because if you go through a situation and people lay on you false guilt, they lay on you this sense of it's your fault, the, the thought is this, I can't trust anybody, and so we isolate ourselves from people. And we find ourselves being hurt, and so I can't trust people again because I can't hurt anymore. And so we have a sense of compounded guilt. And we find that as you look in your notes, if you've never asked God to forgive you, you can do that today. If you've never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I know many of you, and your story's in here, many of you have told me, I have made the decision to trust Jesus Christ as my, as my Lord and Savior. Maybe there's somebody watching online and you say, oh, but I've never done that. We find that the Bible gives us this encouragement. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, He forgives us of our sin and relieves that guilt. If you are a Christian and you acknowledge the forgiveness, you can stop living according to secret rules or self-condemnation. You can start living according to God's relationship and in, ter- in, in His terms and not your terms. Here's God's relationship terms. as you see there in your notes? God's relationship terms are these. I am for you, I am with you, and I love you. You can say, where do I find those those terms? Romans chapter 8. All those powerful, powerful truths are contained in Romans 8. Where God's, the Bible says there in Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? So I say, God's terms of his relationship is that he loves you. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that God loves us, and those are the terms of his relationship. As you look there in your notes, we find this, that guilt is a call to connect with God. Guilt is a call to connect with God. My, my kids have these little uh, stories that we read to them, and they have these stories called Adventures in Odyssey. How many of you have ever heard of Adventures in Odyssey? Anybody? It's a kid's radio program, but they also have stories. A couple weeks ago, we got a book, and it has about four different stories in there. And so with these stories, they're all about these, these kids who live in this town called Odyssey. There's no specific area of the country that it's in, but you kind of get a sense it's maybe out in the Midwest. And this Odyssey, it's kind of like your, like your Andy Griffith kind of town, Mayberry. You know, everybody knows everybody, and everybody loves everybody. And so in this town, there's some main characters. And one of the characters is a guy by the name of, of John Whitaker, and he owns this soda shop. It's a kid's place to hang out called Wits Inn. And the story that I was reading to the kids, and we're going through some of these stories, it's almost like a, if you remember Mr. Rogers, how Mr. Rogers addressed these really heavy issues with kids on his show, like dealing with divorce and dealing with loss, and he was really able to connect. Odyssey kind of does the same kind of concept. So the story I'm reading to the kids is about this little boy named Mark Prescott. And Mark Prescott, he's originally from Washington, D.C. His mom and dad are going through some marital struggles, and so they end up uh, calling for a separation. And so Mark and his mom, they move to Odyssey into his grandmom's old house. His grandmother has passed away, and so she leaves uh, his mom and him this house that they move into in Odyssey. So he gets there, moving out of Washington, D.C., and into this new area. He's meeting all these friends and getting to know Mr. Whitaker and going to the soda shop and working a job, and he's about 10 or 12 years old or so. And so his mom comes to Mark one day, and she says, listen, my, your dad and I are going to try to make amends. We're going to try to work through some of our marital struggles, and so I'm going to fly to Washington, D.C., and you're going to stay with Mr. Whitaker, stay at his house for the next couple of days. So Mark says, ah, oh, this is going to be great. And so he ends up, uh, Mr. Whitaker picks him up that day from his house and takes him to his house, and so he takes him through, and he's never been to Mr. Whitaker's house before. Mr. Whitaker's this older man. He's got, uh, had three kids of his own, but they're all grown up and gone off on their own, uh, starting their own families. And so Whit takes uh, Mark through the house, and so he shows him, here's the living room, here's the TV, you can watch TV whenever you want to, here's the dining room and the kitchen, anything in the kitchen covers is yours, go ahead and uh, feel free to, to get anything you want. He takes him upstairs and says, here's your room, this is the room you're going to stay in, this was my son, uh, Jason's room, and Jason uh, has all these different uh, pictures of, like, he loves sea and maritime stuff, so there's a picture of a lighthouse on the wall, and then there's, uh, next to the bed, there's this lampstand that's an old sea captain dressed in this yellow slicker that's carved out of wood and painted, and just looks really amazing and mysterious at the same time, and then Mr. Whitaker says, that's my room down the hallway, and here's the bathroom, and Mark says, well, what about this other door right here, and he says, that, that, don't worry about that door, don't ever go through that door, so Mark says, Okay, obviously Mr. Whitaker's trying to hide something. So as the next couple days pass, Mark can't get his mind off of what? The door. And late one night, he hears footsteps in the hallway, and he rolls over in his bed, and he looks, and it's about 2 o'clock in the morning. And he sees the light turn on in the hallway, and he sees footsteps. 
And he hears a door opening, and he makes the connection that Mr. Whitaker's going through that door to whatever that room is. And so the next day comes, and he cannot get away from thinking about this door. Mr. Whitaker sees him at the soda shop, and he says, Oh, Mark, by the way, your mom called and said that she's going to fly you to Washington, D.C. to be with you and be with her, her, uh, her and your dad because they want to uh, spend some time with you, spend some time together because things are going well with their relationship. And Mark realizes he's only got one last night to figure out what's behind that door. As he gets home, Mr. Whitaker says, listen, I'm going to drop you off at the house. I have to go do, uh, do some errands, but I'll be back uh, real quick. And so uh, start packing your stuff, get ready for your last night, and then I'll take you early in the morning to go to the airport. So Mark gets in the house and figures he's got just a small window of time to be able to figure out how to get into that door. His first problem is how to unlock the door. He goes and checks the door handle again to see if it's unlocked, and it's not. He looks at the keyhole, and it's this old door, and it's old keyhole, and he figures out maybe if Mr. Whitaker has a, a, what looks like a skeleton key, what might uh, be the thing. And so he goes and starts snooping around in Mr. Whitaker's room, and he finds an old change jar, and he pokes around the change jar, and he found, finds one of those old skeleton keys. And so he goes to the door, and he sticks the key in the door, and sure enough, it clicks and it unlocks. He opens the door up, and he walks up the fir- a few set of stairs and realizes it's an attic area. And so he flips a light switch on, and it's, it's, there's cobwebs, and it's dusty, and there's that musty smell. And so he sees boxes of different things, boxes of books and boxes of Christmas decorations. But all the way at the end of the attic, toward the end of the house, he sees this wide-open area, and there's this big red throw rug that's been laid out. And he sees this bed. It's a single bed that looks like the size of what maybe like a teenager would sleep in. And he sees a small chair and a desk set up with a mirror on the back of the desk. And he goes and he looks and he realizes that this was somebody's bedroom or it is somebody's bedroom. And he's thinking, what secrets is this man keeping? What child does he have locked away up here? And he looks at the desk and he realizes and sees these old newspaper clippings from the Vietnam War. And he sees there that there's these pictures of of Mr. Whitaker when he was a younger man with three little kids. Mr. Whitaker told him about his son Jason and his daughter Jana, but he never talked about his third son, Jerry, very much. And so he looks and sees this newspaper clipping that says, Jerry Whitaker killed in action. And he begins to poke around and realize, as he puts two and two together, that Mr. Whitaker had somehow recreated Jerry's bedroom from when he was a teenager. And so he starts poking around more and more, and he opens up this one drawer, and he finds that there's this... this this kind of clay, this ceramic Indian arrowhead that's been painted on, and he flips it over, and on the back it says uh, this name of this camp, and it has Jerry's name. And all of a sudden, he hears the front door open, and here's Mr. Whitaker call, Mark, I'm home, where are you? And he drops the arrowhead. He drops it, and he hears horrible sound. The arrowhead breaks into pieces. And he's so scared, so he bends over, picks up the arrowhead, shoves it in the back of the drawer, and he runs out, shuts the attic door, and he meets Mr. Whitaker in the hallway. Mr. Whitaker says to him, Mark, what were you doing? He said, oh, I, uh, I was just getting my stuff ready. He said, okay, well, why don't you go ahead and wash up for bedtime? Uh, if there's anything you want for dinner, we can go downstairs, and there's some stuff in the, in the refrigerator. Why don't you start washing up for dinner time, and then we'll get ready for bed because you've got an early start tomorrow. Mark goes in the bathroom, and as he's in the bathroom, and he shuts the door, he turns to lock the door because on the inside of the door in the bathroom, there's a skeleton key to lock that door. And all of a sudden, he remembers. He forgot to take the key out of the attic door that he just shut. He goes to the bathroom, finishes washing his hands, opens the door up, and sees that the key that was for the attic door is gone. He's so scared. He walks into his room, starts packing his things away, and thinks, I, I, I wonder if Mr. Whitaker found it. He walks back out in the hallway and finds that the door is now open. And he hears Mr. Whitaker up there in the attic area. He goes up the steps and says, hey, Mr. Whitaker, what's going on? Mr. Whitaker says, Mark, were you up here? He says, ah. And then Mr. Whitaker shows him the pieces of the Indian head that are all broken. And he says, Mark, I told you not to come up here. This room is my son Jerry's. And he passed away, and this was my place, my special place, and you violated my trust with you. How could I ever trust you? And as the story goes, Mark felt horribly, horribly guilty. You'll find out the rest of the story next week when we talk about forgiveness. But as you think about this this morning, the guilt that you have, the guilt that you feel, how do you take care of that? First and foremost is identify what kind of guilt it is. 
If it's sin, God says, I can take care of that sin. And we need to make that rectified, make that right. But if what you're struggling today with is a false guilt or shame or survivor's guilt or temptation, God says, listen, I don't hold any of those things against you. You haven't done anything wrong. And I want to throw this in here. Didn't put it in the notes, but this is very important to to just jot down and take note of. If you have already confessed your sin to God and God's forgiven you, but you still continue to pick that burden up and carry that, God says that is not for you to carry anymore. The burden of that guilt that God has forgiven was placed on Jesus Christ at the cross. And Psalm 103 says that God has forgiven our sin as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our sin from us. And so when God forgives us of our sin, he removes it from us and doesn't hold, us, hold it against us anymore. And ladies and gentlemen, there is no, absolutely no stipulation on what kind of sin God's talking about. There's no sin that we could do that God says, I will not forgive that sin. None whatsoever. The only thing that God says, I can't engage you on, is when we don't enter into a relationship with God. God says, if you don't engage with me, I can't forgive sin that's not engaged with. And if you don't put your faith and trust in me, I can't forgive you. So when people say, well, why can't God send me to heaven? Why can't God forgive my sin? Because you've never confessed it to God. People that say, I don't need God, but God should still send me to heaven. God says, listen, it doesn't work that way. You have to engage me in a personal relationship. And that is how I relieve the guilt. As you look there in your notes today, as we wrap up here this morning, Guilt is a call to connect with God. But here's the deal. We have to understand if it's pre-salvation or post-salvation. Pre-salvation, we'll put this up on the screen, is this. Guilt pre-salvation points to my need for salvation. What's the call to action? I need to be saved. The answer is to enter into a relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus and you feel the burden of guilt, this is the answer today, is to put your faith. You can pray a simple prayer. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I ask you to save me and relieve me of this guilt. Forgive me of my sin. And he will do that today. But the second thought is this. If you're here today and you're saved, the guilt, how to take care of guilt post-salvation is this. We'll see here. It points to my need for connection with God. My need for my connection with God. The answer is to grow in my relationship with Jesus. As I mentioned before, my kids, they are my children. They have my, my blood, my DNA, my name on them. And they can change their name, but they're still going to be my, my kids. And when you enter into a relationship with God, you have that same kind of bond. You are God's child. Nothing you can do can separate you from God's love. But we can cut off the fellowship with God. My kids, they can disobey me, and they can do things that I tell them not to do. And how do we correct that? We correct that by connecting them together. When I come to them and correct to connect, that is what happens when we grow in a relationship. So maybe you're here today and say, I'm saved, but I feel guilt. Identify what kind of guilt it is, and then go from there and say, it's my chance now to connect with God and my relationship with Him. We'll talk more about some of these uh, thoughts and concepts today in a discussion group if you're able to stay around. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this issue of guilt as we talk about here in just a moment. Let's go ahead and close up our time. Thanks so much for listening to the message today. If you'd like to know more about Greater Philly Church, you can go online to greaterphilly.church. I'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt, M-A-T-T, Manny, M-A-N-N-E-Y. If you need great content to help you throughout your week with your relationship with Jesus, you can find my blog at mattmanny.com. Thanks again for listening.